Well, I would like to add my voice to that, to all the moms here at the Hobson campus and all the moms at the 95th. Happy Mother's Day, moms. You, you deserve a special service dedicated to you, and that's what this is, and I really hope that you are blessed by it. I am so excited, you know, if you, if you haven't figured it out, I, I'm like the proposed next guy, <laughs> which is something that I have been waiting for with great anticipation for so long, but admittedly, it makes a little awkwardness combined with the excitement, because here's why, at least I'm feeling it, maybe you're not. I really, 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 really want to be your next pastor. (laughs) And we have this little thing next weekend called a vote. And because of that, this message and my time with you could very easily be this, you know, you're kind of like, I'm going to take notes and I'm going to jot down my evaluation of how it goes. I could be real focused on wanting to impress and please and win And if I do that, my brain's going to be all goofed up. More importantly, my soul's going to be all messed up. And so I have been praying that I can put that aside and just not worry about that, and that I can simply turn us to the Word of God and study it together and and let the vote go where it goes. Sound like a plan? And so you can pray for me towards that end, because I I really want to just have a precious time with you guys. If I could address uh, just real quickly, you know, we, we celebrate Mother's Day, and for, for most, maybe, uh, this is a real special time, but I just want to acknowledge that for a lot, there's great pain associated with Mother's Day. Maybe you lost your mom, and this seems to be a time that opens that wound again, or maybe uh, you, you had a mom, but mom fell short of what God intended a mom to be, and, and that hurts. Or maybe you've always wanted to be a mom, and that opportunity has not come your way. And so I just want to acknowledge, for those who are hurting, uh, I pray that you too will be blessed, and that you will find great comfort in the message that God has for us. And I'm praying that God gives you an extra dose of his presence and love as, as you celebrate Mother's Day. So... To dive into our Mother's Day message, I wanted to go back in time. So I'm, I'm an old man now, but uh, 20 years ago, I was 25, and I was a young man. I was newly married and a new pastor of the church that I just recently left called the chapel. And something interesting happened to, to me back at that time that I'll never forget. I, I went to a wedding with my new bride, one of her uh, dear friends was getting married, and that friend, that friend happened to be her college roommate, and also the daughter of John Ashcroft. Some of you will remember John Ashcroft was the attorney general for the United States. He, at that point, was the governor of Missouri. And so, you know, when you get married, a lot of times mom and dad get to invite their friends to the reception, wedding as well. So as we went to this reception, dad's high and powerful guests were seated at the table with us. It was very awkward. You know, I I was so young, I didn't really know how to do a tie. They're all wearing tailored suits, and they're looking real sharp, and I'm like, you know, nervous. And as they introduce themselves, they can't help but mention what they do for a living. And it turned out that one of the guys owned a, a 
a, a bank, uh, the biggest and best bank in all of Missouri. And one of the guys owned a hotel in St. Louis that apparently was the most luxurious hotel. And the, the other guy was the, the chairman of the Republican Party for the state of Missouri. And, and they were all uh, just kind of sharing who they were. And I was feeling very small. You ever been in company where you just feel really, really small? And, and at that point, the, um, one of the guys looked at me and said, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I put on the spots. And, you know, I, the truth was the, the chapel, this church that we were starting was in its first stages. I mean, when I say first stages, we weren't even meeting on Sunday mornings yet. We were meeting. It was a Thursday night Bible study with 10 people attending. All right. That's all it was. But I can't say that, obviously. And so I had to make it sound better. And so I just kind of said, well, I'm the senior pastor of a church in Chicagoland, is what I told them. That's true, just for the record, yeah. And they were impressed. You know, they saw a young guy like this, senior pastor. Wow, that's really great. And I thought I had, you know, kind of escaped the true reveal of who and how lowly I was. And sure enough, one of the guys said, how many people attend your church? <laughs> and so I had to, to kind of scramble here. And so I said, well... We're, we're an entrepreneurial venture in the early stages of phase one in our launch strategy. My wife goes, ten! Ten people attend our church. <laughs> Thanks, hon. Appreciate you bringing that up. But I remember in that moment feeling like I didn't matter because the size of the group that was entrusted to my leadership was so small. Kind of makes me think of moms. You know, moms sometimes, they look at the group that's been entrusted to their care and leadership, and relatively, it's small. And you may be tempted as you devote yourself to that small army to assume that you don't matter as a result of that. That is not true. My wife sometimes has commented, I have three kids, Uh, Jorah is... 15, Janae 10, Jake 7. And there are times when my wife says, yeah, you get to go minister to thousands of people while I have to take care of your three kids. You know, you know it's bad when they're mine. And, and I try to remind her, and I'd like to remind us, that the job of a mom, the, the job of a dad for that matter too, that the job of caring for children is unbelievably significant to God in the spiritual realm as you see it for what it really is, and hopefully to us. Because moms, you are a VIP, very important person, with an unbelievably significant task. When I think of Jesus, it's so interesting when you study the the commitment of Christ you discover that Jesus had this relatively small church, didn't he? Well, admittedly, he spoke to large crowds some of the time, but the majority of his ministry energies and focus was on how many? The 12. In fact, let me show you a real interesting verse, one that I think uh, will start our study off real well. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus said this. This is at the end of his ministry. He said, Go, he said, talking to his disciples, the 12, he says, go and make 
disciples of all the nations. Now, that's fascinating for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows you how audacious Jesus' objective was. He says, my goal is all nations. I have a vision, Christ said, that this cause that we're building, this community of people who have been reconciled to God and are in love with him, Jesus said, my mission is that all nations would come to me. And then the verse also says not only the audacity of his goal, but the strategy with which he's going to pursue that goal. And that is the strategy of discipleship. He says to disciples, go make disciples. Isn't that interesting? Now, this discipleship strategy, some consultants would step into Jesus's uh, path and say, Jesus, this is a bad strategy. It's, it's too small. If your goal is to change the whole world, you need to get away from your focus on the few, and you need to begin to prioritize the many. And Jesus said, uh, I beg to differ. I know exactly what I'm doing. I will build disciples who will in turn build disciples. Remember, he told the disciples, go make disciples and who will in turn make disciples. A disciple is quite uh, simply uh, a student. That's what the word means. It's someone who's learning. And Jesus taught his disciples what it meant to know God, taught them who God was so thoroughly that they were in love with the Lord. And as they were just transformed by this love relationship with God, Jesus said, now you go help others find what you found and help them find it so thoroughly that they can help others find what you found, and then those people will help others. See, the the brilliance behind this discipleship strategy is that Jesus says, rather than focusing on helping big groups a little bit, I'm going to help small groups fall in love with the Lord so dearly, so completely transformed that they will be qualified to share that with others who will be qualified. And Jesus knew that if his movement was going to go on and on through the centuries, this discipleship strategy was the only way to go. It it reminds me of, uh, in fact, I'm going to refer to it as the chain of discipleship. I have a chain here just as a symbol. And if Jesus is the first link, he passed on this love for God to his disciples And in the passage we just read, he said, now I want you to pass that on to others who will pass it on to others who will pass it on to others. And it's worked. The brilliance of Christ's strategy is demonstrated that through the centuries, from person to person to person, it has continued until those of us who are Christ followers are the beneficiaries of that. We're part of that chain that has gone from one generation on to the next. And moms, can I just say it this way? Parenting is discipleship. In the eyes of the Lord Almighty, your objective is not simply to see that they arrive at the age of 18 alive. The goal is to do what Jesus did with his disciples and to train them to know the Lord. This discipleship strategy that's demonstrated in parenting uh, was was brought to my full attention when my wife and I visited Israel uh, a few years back. 
we went to Israel, and one of the things that I was uh, confused by at first, then fascinated with, was these little metal boxes attached to all of the door frames of all the houses. They're called mezuzahs. I actually have one here. I'm holding it, which isn't very helpful, so let's go to the big picture on the screen. You can see that the mezuzah has a, a few holes in the top and bottom where you can screw it into the door frame of your house, and on the back, there's a little door there with a tiny scroll that's in every one of them. And that scroll carries a precious passage from our Bible, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. And that passage is on the door frame because in that passage, it quite, well, let me read what it says. In that passage, it says, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 9, write them, the, the law of God, on the doorposts of your house. Quite literally, the passage instructs us to have a visual reminder. And again, some people take this more figuratively, that we're always to be thinking about this objective. The Jews take it quite literally, and they put it on the door frames of their house so they will not forget. My wife and I have joined the literalists, and we have put it on the door frame of our bedroom. Uh, we didn't want to put it on the front door of our house, but our, one of our mezuzahs is stuck to the door frame of our house as a constant reminder of this passage. What is on that little scroll? The, the Jewish people call it the Shema. The Shema is this precious passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9 that is repeated by the Jewish people every single day. They say the Shema. And it is the discipleship strategy that is to be implemented in the home. Shall, shall we look at it? It's, it's so funny. You'll see this in, in the, the couple verses, first couple verses of Deuteronomy 6 that kind of set up the Shema. It says this, Moses speaking, God commanded me, Moses said, to teach you. And he says, you and your children and your grandchildren must fear the Lord. Moses says there is no way that God's vision of the nation of Israel and beyond is going to be transformed unless we figure out a way to train our children to pass on this confidence and this knowledge of the glory of God and what it means to be reconciled to him through his grace. And so Moses says, here's my vision. Here's God's vision, that I pass it on to you, that you pass it on to your children, that your children pass it on to your grandchildren, and so on. You see, that's discipleship. That's the teaching that goes from generation to generation like a chain reaction that ripples throughout time and over great distance. Good stuff. So you say, all right, I see it. I understand that part of the core of what it means to be a mom is that I'm a discipler somehow to spread contagious love for the Lord onto the next generation. But how? How do I do it? And one of the things I love about the Shema, this section of scripture, is that it provides some very helpful guidance towards that end. So let's take a look. Here's what at first it says. It teaches us the content of what we're supposed to teach our kids. You know, what am I supposed to teach them? That's a fair question. And sometimes content can be so complex that I really think the Shema is helpful in simplifying down what we need to convey to the next generation. 
And first part of the content I would call the identity of God. The Shema, verse 4, begins in this way. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. When it says the Lord, the, the Hebrew that's translated the Lord literally is the name of God, Yahweh. Some of you may know that when Moses first encountered the Lord at Mount Sinai by the burning bush, God said, I'll tell you my name, Moses, it's Yahweh. And so when he says Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, what Moses is declaring is that I know you people come from a polytheistic world where there's all these different gods and they all have different personalities and strengths and weaknesses. Moses says, we got to throw it all away. There's only one God. His name is Yahweh. And he has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to us. And we need to get rid of false notions of God and replace them with a crystal clear understanding of who God is. Do you know how important it is that our kids understand who God is? Oh, my. Uh, In fact, I would go so far as to say if we can convey to them an accurate knowledge of God, they will be won over. God is so beautiful and so wonderful that if you can just see him, you will fall in love with him. A.W. Tozer, he once said that the most important thing about any person is their understanding of God. Everything springs from that. And I really believe that's true. So many times people leave the faith or kids grow up and leave the faith because they have a distorted understanding of God being distant or uh, emotionally detached or maybe angry and vengeful. They need desperately to see the one true God. And I look at my kids we want our kids to see the glory of God. In fact, I, uh, just this week, I was putting uh, my son Jake to bed, seven years old, tucking him in, and I, I reminded of him of something that I do many nights. And I said to him, Jake, remember, as you sleep, you sleep in the shadow of God's outstretched wings. There's a imagery in scripture of God like a mother hen stretching his wings over his beloved young. And I said, Jake, God's with you in this room. And not only is he with you, Jake, he's looking at you right now. And if you could see his face, Jake, he's got a big smile on his face because he loves you. And I was just testing to see if he was really listening. So I said, and he almost loves you as much as your daddy does. And Jake goes, no, he loves me more than you do, daddy. And I'm like, you're, you're right, son, he does. And one of my greatest prayers is that my kids will see the wonder of who our God is. And so as we're discipling our children, any chance we can, describe what God, what we have discovered God to be like as he reveals himself in the scriptures, in the person of Jesus, in our lives. Got to talk about that and pray like crazy that we can convey the picture of the true glory of God, or at least a fraction of the true glory of God. The second part of the contents of what we're to teach, one is the identity of God. The second is the essence of our faith. Uh, The essence of what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it really about? 
And what I love about the Shema is it says it in the next verse, verse 5. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You remember Jesus said that. Remember he was asked what's the most important commandment in all the world? And he quoted from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus said the most important thing, the essence of it all, is to be crazy in love with your God. We've got to teach our kids that the essence of the Christian faith is a love relationship with the Almighty God. Some, some kids grow up thinking that the essence of Christianity is rules. It's morality. you got to keep the rules and be a good moral kid. And clearly that's part of it, but even that is supposed to be an expression of our love for the Lord. Other kids grow up thinking that the essence of it is ritual. It's going to church and doing all the rituals. Here's the deal. If kids think that it's about rules and ritual, they're going to walk away. I would. What makes our faith so enticing is that at its core, the essence of our faith is a love relationship with the Almighty God, that he loves us and wants us to love him with everything we've got and to do life with this one who loves us and to do life for this one because we love him. If the the young kids can see that it's about this journey, this shared experience with God, oh my, it's huge to pass that gift on to them. We had an interesting experience happen this week towards that end. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was shocked to see that a mother bird had built a nest on top of a wreath hanging on our front door. And I got a little wigged out, you know, as I opened the door, and this bird flies away, you know, I'm like, this is not going to work. So I, I took the wreath down and I placed it uh, leaning against the wall by the door, assuming that the bird would never return. But to our surprise, the bird did come back and laid four, as a robin, laid four eggs. I think we have a picture of it here. Can you see the precious four blue eggs in that nest on top of the wreath? Well, we were so proud. We'd look out the window. The kids were so excited to watch this mother bird sitting on these eggs for a week or so. And then this week, no sign of mom. My wife did some research online, and she discovered that if a mother bird does not feel safe, it will abandon her eggs and take off, and the eggs die without that warmth. Well, this was devastating to my children. Uh, Just absolutely devastating. Janae in particular, she's just like, no, how can that be? Well, I I saw an opportunity and I said, Janae, let's talk about that. It's very sad that this mother bird would, for a time, show such tender affection to these eggs, these young. And then later on, when she doesn't feel safe, she splits. I said, Janae, is, is God like that? And Janae goes, no. I said, the amazing thing about God is that he's with us in good times and he's with us in bad times. Our whole life can be a place where God has his wings stretched out, wrapping us up, saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never abandon you. Janae didn't ask for a sermon, but she got one. And I just told her that the beautiful thing about The Christian life is that we do it with God forever. What am I describing? 
The essence of the Christian life is a love relationship with a God who adores us, who deserves our great love. And we're with him, in love with him forever. That's what it's all about. Well, the Shema is so unbelievably helpful because it teaches us that if we want to engage in discipling our children, the content, the essence of it is, who is God? What's the, what's the nature? What did I say? The identity of our God. And secondly, the essence of our faith is a love relationship. Now let's talk about how do we convey these truths. Do we preach them? Do we say, it's church time, kids, stand here, dad's going to get a big pulpit, and dad, you know, our mom's going to yell at you? No, uh, the, the, the beautiful thing about the Shema is it even gives us a picture of what this teacher-student interaction should look like. Uh, let me tell you two expressions of the method that God has for us. The first part of the method is that parents, moms, we must live it first. Look at what it says in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. Moses, or the Lord through Moses, says, You, parents, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. And then it says you can repeat them again and again to your children. Before it tells you to transfer them or teach your kids, it says you've got to live it first. You need to. Commit yourselves wholeheartedly to this way of God. This is so important. Kids smell hypocrisy a mile away. Isn't that true? And when mom and dad say, this is the way to live, and yet they're not interested in living it themselves, there's a disconnect there that kids are going to just say, no thanks. The greatest thing we can do is not what we say, but how we live so that they see Christ in us. You see that? Perfectly? No. Every one of us messes up. But even when we mess up, it's a great chance to teach and say, you know what? Mom and dad messed up big time here. We've apologized to the Lord and he's been gracious and he's forgiven us. And so we ask you to forgive us. And we're going to. The authenticity of just saying, look to me as I stumble in my effort to live out this. Christ life that I've been invited into. And as you live it, oh, can I just comment for a moment on my parents? More than what my mom and dad said, I was blessed by how they lived. Even my friends, non-Christian friends would come over and say, we want to be at your house, Jeff. Your parents are so cool, which it doesn't sound very theologically profound, but it actually was because in saying they were cool, he says, they were saying, there's a joy, and there's a love, and there's a fun, and there's a selflessness that your mom and dad demonstrate. They didn't have those words for it, but that's what they were seeing, that we just don't know what that is, because we don't have that at home. They were describing the very life of Christ as it was displayed in my parents. And I, I grew up just saying, I want to be like my dad. Didn't tell my Friends, that it's not cool to idolize your parents in that way. But my dad was my hero, my mom as well. And I wanted to be like that. And that's the goal is we're not perfect, but to live our life in a way where the kids can look at us and say, I see it in my parents. Well, live it. Method has two steps. Live it is one, and then the second is teach it. We've already been referring to that, but I want to 
show you a really cool verse that describes what this classroom looks like. Verse 7. Parents are challenged to talk about them. That's the, the commands of God, the ways of God. Talk about them when you're at home. Talk about them when you're on the road. Talk about them when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. <laughs> Isn't that great? You see this informal approach where families are just doing life together and through the context of doing life together, there are teachable moments like the bird's nest that, where the b- bird abandoned the eggs or like the going to bed and kissing your kid goodnight. Life, for those who have eyes to see, is filled with teachable moments where we can just be going about life, processing what we're thinking out loud and saying, hey, kids, you know what I was thinking about? You know what I was reading this morning in the Bible? I'm not saying that formal instruction is a problem. I, I, my mom and dad had uh, nightly devotions where we'd sit around the table and there was a formal instruction, and that's great. But I think it's the informal. As you go about, you know, it says as you walk along the road, today we drive. So, the, you know, as you go in your car and you have a talk, or as you're waking up in the morning and eating your cereal, it's in those moments along the life. That's how Jesus did it. Did you ever think about that? The discipleship strategy of Christ was one where he invited his disciples to follow me, do life with me, watch my example. And let me teach you as we go. And that's what Christ would do. He'd say, consider the birds of the air as they're walking along, looking at the birds. Jesus modeled and Jesus taught as they shared life. And that's the plan of the Shema. Brilliant. 3,000-year-old strategy, more than that, that the Lord has said, I want the family to be a place of discipleship. Now, some of you are like, doggone it, I I messed it up. My kids are already grown, and man, I'll tell you what, they are not, you know, Peter, James, and John. Uh, This is just not working here. Good news, the good news, the call to disciple never leaves us. Every disciple of Jesus is to be a discipler of others. First of all, you always have an influence in your kids. And so even if they're adults now, pray that God would use you still to help them see what life with God can be like. But not just your kids. Let me just spread this discipleship objective into other arenas. Many of you serve with the children here at church. Thank you. Thank you. Many of you are grandparents who are pouring into your grandchildren. Thank you. Keep doing that. And it doesn't just have to be children. Some are leaders of a small group because they want to have disciples, have somebody that they're helping them know God. Others are mentors. You know, they have an accountability partner, and it's their prayer that God would use them to help these younger believers grow. doesn't matter what context it comes in, but you need to know Jesus wants every single one of us to have somebody that we're helping learn about God. And so my prayer for the Compass Church is that increasingly we will all become disciple makers, that we'll have the incredible joy of being used by God to help someone else fall in love with the Lord.
I wanted to end my uh, study by telling you the story of a precious woman. Uh, her name is Salma. Salma Hansen, no longer with us. She's gone to be with the Lord. But I, I have a picture of her and her family. I, I'd like to point them out. Uh, this picture is, is 95 years old, or was taken 95 years ago. And this is Salma Hansen, good Norwegian lady, and her husband, Ingvald, and then her, her daughter, Iola. Right? I want to tell you about Selma. Selma grew up in Norway, and like many immigrants of a century ago, at the age of 21, she jumped in a boat all by herself to come to America in pursuit of the American dream. Dissatisfied with life in Norway, she heard stories of this life of luxury and, and just abundance, and she was mesmerized by the greatness that her life could embrace by coming to America. And so at the age of 21, she came in pursuit of the dream. Didn't work out so well. You know, she had big dreams that her life was going to be great. And as she came, the very best job she could find was being a maid to rich people in Chicago. And so she found herself cleaning toilets. She found herself doing laundry and cleaning dishes for these rich people. She was the lowest person on the totem pole in, in society. And she met Ingvald, but he wasn't very rich or important either. Ingvald was a carpenter who struggled to find enough work, and so they were, for want of money, uh, most of their lives. And then you need to know that Selma had a dream of a family, a big family, and they struggled to get pregnant. They struggled for a long time, and in fact, they only had one pregnancy. Iola is the only child they had. And so the American dream, you know, of coming over and having this big, wealthy, successful family was far from what reality turned out to be. Now, in the year of their engagement, they were invited to a church. They were not believers at the time, but they, during the year of their engagement, they were invited to a church in Chicago where they attended and found Jesus. And Christ transformed their lives. And Christ transformed their ambitions and dreams. And Selma found that she wasn't as interested in the American dream. She wanted God's dream. And God's dream was for her to disciple this one child he entrusted her with. And so Selma turned her very best with God's help to the goal of raising this little girl to know Jesus and follow him with abandon. And by God's grace, Selma had great success in this objective. Iola, uh, 96 years old, this lady's still around, if you can believe it or not. In fact, here's a picture of Iola uh, with her little daughter. Iola had one girl and then two boys when she grew up. And Iola, like a Christian mom following the Shema and this plan of the Lord. Iola said, 
I want, this her little daughter is Sue Ellen. I want Sue Ellen to know Christ. I want her to see the glory of God. I want her to live with abandon for Jesus Christ. I want the chain of discipleship to pass on to the next generation. And by God's grace, Iola was successful in raising Sue Ellen in the ways of Jesus. Sue Ellen grew up. One more, poor Suella never had any girls to continue this, but she did have three boys, and I am the oldest of those three. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, we'll praise that for now. And my mom took her job as disciple maker very seriously and prayed that God would enable her to raise her boys to know and love the Lord. And the spiritual vitality and the dynamic in my relationship with God that I enjoy every moment of every day is in part due to my mom's faithful ministry to me over my lifetime. And my mom ministering to me so faithfully raising me to be a disciple is because Iola did it to her. And the reason Iola did it to her is because Selma discipled Iola, and I am blessed to be a link in that chain that goes back and is passed on. Folks, do you want to be a link in that chain? Do you want to be blessed by God with the unbelievable privilege of helping someone else know him? God's plan is that every one of us would enjoy that again and again and again. And I'd like to pray that we'd rise up to the high calling of being a disciple maker. Can we pray that? Lord, we see your strategy revealed both in uh, the words and the method of Jesus Christ. We see your strategy revealed in the Shema, this precious passage from Deuteronomy 6. We don't want to just study it, Lord. We want to live it. We want to enter into that life. We want to be used by your Holy Spirit to help the next generation love you more than we do. And the next generation after them, even more yet. Please, God, lead us. Show us who. Show us how. Give us the courage to step in to that great privilege of being a disciple maker. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.